Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a recording taken from an event held at our Carlton store this month with Andrew Skeok, author of the recently released book, Deep Listening to Nature. As one of Australia's best-known nature sound recordists, Skeok's work offers us an invitation and an opportunity to open our ears to nature and to learn from the world around us. Particularly focused on avian life, his book is an inspiring text filled with reflection, wonder and rumination that I thoroughly recommend. Here's the recording of our conversation. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Readings Carlton. My name is Nico, and I'm one of the event staff here at Readings. And it's my great pleasure to have you all here tonight for a discussion, conversation about many things, but in particular, this fantastic new book by Andrew Skiok. Before we get involved in our conversation, I want to acknowledge that when we're having this discussion in this store, this is Indigenous land, this is Wurundjeri Woiwurrung land, we're in the, the Kulin Nation, and I want to pay respect to traditional custodians. If there are any First Nations people here with us tonight, I want to extend respect and solidarity, especially at this fractious time in our country's history. But I'm sincere towards a, a better future and sincere reconciliation, so thank you. Andrew, thank you very, very much for coming to join us here in the store. My pleasure. Andrew, you're a naturalist, an environmental thinker, clearly, an educator and very acclaimed sound recording artist. And this book comes with endorsements from the likes of Robin Davidson, the author of the fantastic book, Tracks, and also from Bob Brown, who is another leading environmental activist and, of course, former senator and leader of the Greens. I think having endorsements like that on the cover of that that quality is very rare and very precious. And I think in seeing those, I was very, very intrigued when you approached me about the notion of doing a launch here, thinking, who's this guy with this this semi-independent book that's been published that is really causing a stir with these people who are such renowned and revered thinkers in terms of environment, landscape. And I'm really delighted to have the chance to talk with you and to learn more about your work, what went into this, and to share that information with all of you as well. Because it is really, really precious and really special. And I would like to think that we can spread this book far and wide into the world. So anyway, that's my my hard sell. Now into the soft sell. Can you maybe start off our conversation by telling us what deep listening is to you? Yes, thank you, Nico. And, And thanks, everyone, for coming along. We think of listening as something that we do with our ears. We, we, our ears hear sounds, but it really it's our mind that does the listening. So it's not just hearing the sounds of, in, in this case, the natural world. It's going deeply into appreciating what we're hearing. And the first thing that one has to do is to kind of slow down to nature's pace because our pace of listening in the modern world, information's just being thrown at us at a a fast and furious rate. So the first thing is to actually slow down and to develop, to, to extend one's listening out into the world around us. Once again, in an urban environment, that's not all that nice to do because most of the sound, you know, out here in the streets, a good example, it's what can be called junk sound. It's, it's got low information value. 
So in nature, it's quite the opposite. There is a huge amount of information value in what you hear in, an, in the natural environment. So for me, deep listening is firstly extending your hearing out into, into nature. It's understanding what you're hearing, being able to interpret it, and then going more deeply into understanding the processes that you're hearing. Because when a sound is created, it's because something's happening. So I think of the bush as telling us stories. It's, it's telling us what's happening. It's telling us the process. Rather than nature being a noun, I think of nature as a verb. It's active. It's constantly doing things. And sound lets us hear that, that process of, of nature. Definitely. That's a really beautiful sentiment to tie that together, I think. And that's something that comes through really strongly throughout this book. It's that it's, you're drawing upon all of this information, but coming to a philosophy and a way of being in the world that I think is more it's more present and apt in this text than in a lot of other books that may sit in our cultural studies section or our philosophy section which are esoteric from the get-go and only get more bizarre as they go on whereas yours charts a really nice solid line that draws in all of these examples and this information and comes to really intriguing conclusions can I ask you where did the idea to write this book come from it kind of emerged gradually. I've been sound recording for about 30 years and um, my partner Sarah is here this evening. The two of us have been sound recording around the world and um, you guys have been selling our CDs back in the day when we were producing CDs. So we've been doing it a long time and really in the beginning I had no, not only no thought about writing a book, like you, you hear people say, oh, everyone's got a book in them. So, no, nah, I ain't got one. <laughs> but gradually over the years, I was invited to give talks and, and presentations, sometimes at university level, sometimes to primary school kids. And I'd have to, I'd have to say something. <laughs> I'd have to think of something to say. You can't just play a whole lot of recordings. You have to kind of, you know, so I'd be thinking of, well, how do I interpret what I'm hearing? What am I hearing? Why is this significant? Why is this particular recording really piqued my curiosity about what's going on in, in this circumstance? This particular bird song or, you know, this, this phenomenon, this acoustic phenomenon like the dawn chorus or something. So gradually the ideas started emerging and I started articulating them to audiences and finding that people were really fascinated just that this is a subject that we are, you know, so many people are, are curious about and want to learn something about. Mm. And the, the enthusiasm is infectious because I know from personal experience from assignments at university, once I discovered Zeno Canto, which is this absolutely enormous trove of nature but predominantly bird recordings from around the world, just enthusiasts who will climb up a ravine in the Andes to record a bird that can only be found there and then preserve that and then put it on the internet for everyone for free and then you find out oh there's also 50 million more recordings to go hunting for things that are in my my home area that i'd never heard before i guess because i hadn't attenuated my listening properly just yet but speaking of recordings what is the process of being a sound recordist like and what is it all about so for me it's an aesthetic process i'm i'm looking for a beautiful soundscape and I don't know how to put that into words any more than a musician would say, 
what is, you know, a beautiful piece of music or, or what is the piece of music that they're aiming to, to offer the world. The sounds of nature are, are so diverse. Some of them really are beautiful and some of them are pretty harsh and hard on your ear, but even the ones that are harsh are full of character. So, you know, to get a, a group of apostle birds around the microphones and they're all... You know, it's just... It, it makes you smile. It's, it's an exhilarating sound. Something like Pied Butcherbirds are one of the most sublime and melodic songbirds in the world. The Malabar Whistling Thrush is a gorgeous, very slow, part reflective kind of song that you hear just drifting through the trees in the Indian forest. It's, it's like... Oh. And all of these sounds, just to hear them live in the environment, I found beautiful and fascinating. Then the next trick was, how do I capture that and bring it back for other people to hear? And to be honest, I haven't really gone down the technological road all that much. Uh, I simply use the best quality pair of microphones that I can get. It's called an array. Uh, you basically set the microphones up in such a way that when you listen back to it, you hear a spacious stereo soundscape. The trick is really getting the microphones in the right place at the right time. And that involves understanding a lot about the habitat and the creatures that are there. So sometimes it's easy. Sometimes you just get up early and put mics out and you get a really nice morning of, of recording from pre-dawn right through till mid-morning. Other times, um, I'm just top of my mind, I'm just thinking of times in Tanzania when we were recording lions. And uh, I wasn't allowed to be in the park overnight, so I just put the microphones out overnight and I put them near a, a lion kill. And our driver said, yeah, I'd be lucky to find it in the morning, but okay. <laughs> we got some fabulous recordings of lions at really close range. Every, every particular thing that you want to record, you have a different way of, of doing it. But generally, it's a, a good pair of stereo mics and get them in the right spot at the right time. I guess it is unfortunate that so much of our, our ability to interpret and uh, take meaning from these sounds, particularly through these recordings, is mediated through the technology that we have, which you know, the likes of the computer, the phone can replicate it, but they can't really... Um, fully capture it. How do you no. go about navigating that distance between the real space and then presenting it to people in another way? Oh, I can't really do that. I mean, it's, you're right, it's, it's a limitation in the medium. But it's kind of a, well, just try and bring something back that can communicate to people. And um, I think we've released about 100 sound recordings from around the world, you know, 100 full soundscape albums, some of them several hours in, in duration. And they are enjoyable to listen to, even if you're not there. I checked out your catalogue online and it is extraordinarily extensive. For you, is there a particular place that you've been to that is unlike any other or is perhaps one that could be really instructive to potential <laughs> listeners? The thing is, everywhere we've been to is unlike any other. And um, just staying with Africa for a moment, when Sarah and I first went there, my thought was, oh, there's so many different birds. So I had a bird book of African birds and I'm looking through it. This is just, it's just gonna be the most fascinating place for recording birdsong. 
for the first two or three weeks, we were just completely wowed by the mammals. You know, seeing giraffes, seeing elephants, zebra, lions. It's like, <laughs> this is, I hadn't expected it to have that kind of impact on us. Then we got into the birdsong as well. But so everywhere you go, it's, it's unexpected what you're going to encounter. And some of the places like uh, the Solomon Islands, just some of the things we heard there, utterly unexpected. It just took me down whole new ways of, of listening to, to nature. Papua New Guinea on our doorstep, but it's like another world. And to be up in the cloud forests with the mist drifting through, and the, these mossy, the, the old man beard hanging off all the, all the trees, and to hear these exotic birds like Melodictes, which are a large honey eater. Another small black bird, a, a Melampita, which is about the size of a blackbird. And it makes this extraordinary call. It's incredibly loud. And it's just a, I'm listening to the microphones trying to handle this, the volume that's coming out of this tiny little bird. I've never heard any bird in the world make a sound like, like the melampita. So there's just, you know, everywhere you go, nature is absolutely fascinating in its own way and things that you don't expect. So, for instance, in the Solomons, we were in the, the forest one day and I heard this growling noise. It was up in the canopy and it was a kind of hissing, growling. What on earth is that? I thought it was coming from a mammal. It wasn't. It was coming from a bird. And I've never heard a bird make a noise like that before. So everywhere you go, there's, there's just unexpected things, particularly from a sound point of view. You know, you can get the bird book and you can look at the species and so on, but to actually hear them. Is, is there's just so much that was unexpected. And, yeah, speaking of bird books, um, in this book, which is not a bird book per se, but is you know, rich in information about them, you do acknowledge other writers, authors, thinkers who have done extensive research into avian life and its place within not just the natural world, but also its influence on our own world as well, like uh, Tim Lowe, Jared Diamond... What was the process like for, you know, you mentioned like coming to your own thoughts about this book, but were there particular other thinkers or modes of research that you went to? Because to, the, the notes in this book at the end aren't quite broad in what they cover. So what was that process like of drawing the information together? And what did you prioritise? What did you have to leave behind? One of the big decisions I made was, was if it's on Wikipedia, I don't need to say it. <laughs> and that cut out an awful lot of writing. <laughs> I guess I've come across a lot of, you know, things that people have said over the years that have just had an impact on me in one way or another. And my own thinking, I don't know whether it's derived from them. As I say, I think it's derived more from my actual experiences being out in the bush. But it, there's been a kind of symbiosis between those ideas and, and my own. So I wanted to credit them where I felt that it was relevant to do so. I was saying to you earlier that there's one passage in the book, the notion of birds and the loss of the natural world and, you know, biosphere and that kind of thing. It's easy for us to see that happening painfully because it's happening very painfully, obviously. But it's easier to acknowledge that as a truth than it is to imagine an alternative for many people. And as I was reading this part of the text, I thought, oh, that sounds a lot like... This other writer I'm familiar with, Mark Fisher, parroting, could it be Slavoj Žižek or someone else? And then I noticed there was a little 
you know, index note right next to that passage. And I flipped to the back of the book, and there you'd written Mark Fisher parroting Slavoj Žižek. And I thought, okay, we're on the same page about this. That's cool. <laughs> I think the quote is, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. That was the original quote. And I kind of thought, yeah, we're, we're, there's such a narrative that we are destroying the world that we live in. That's, that's the easy bit. So what's the solution? What's, what do we do about this? And I'm not sure that I've got an answer, but I feel that nature's giving us a lot of pretty heavy hints. And that's what I've tried to draw out in the, in the last chapter of the book. And it came about because just before I started writing the book, I'd been talking about nature and birdsong and, and all these things that I'd been hearing and fascinated with. And I was given a, um, the opportunity of giving a talk at the Australian Earth Laws Alliance conference in Melbourne. And I thought, this isn't a nature audience. These people are they're lawyers, they're academics, they're policy people, they're administrators and bureaucrats. I can talk about nature, but I've got to kind of bring it home for them, what I'm, I'm actually perceiving here and, and starting to think about. And so, although that particular event, I probably sketched some ideas, but they were really fascinated. And it felt to me as though people who have been active in social policy and civil society, it's kind of like, what I was saying was, you know, nature affirms exactly what you're trying to achieve here. The way that nature creates sustenance and continuance, the processes that it does to achieve that are exactly the same as the processes that lead to, that we call civil society. And to me, it was kind of like a fairly obvious conclusion, but I realized that it's something that if it has been said, I don't know who else might have said it. And coming from a sound point of view where you're hearing how nature works, that, that thing about nature being a verb, it just seems like the, the most poignant understanding that I feel as I've come to from all these decades of, of listening is that nature's kind of giving us the template of how to create a sustainable, safe society. It's listening that allows us to do that. And I think that feeds back into the indigenous idea of, of the indigenous people saying, no, you listen to the land. That can be nice, you know, poetical, lyrical kind of thing, or it can actually be physically, no, you physically use your ears and your mind to listen to what you're hearing in the natural environment. Well, speaking of like indigenous knowledge and cultural practice, there was one, one short passage in the book that I wanted to, to share, if I may, if I can inhabit your voice. <laughs> in a, I guess it's fitting because it's a passage I want to read that refers to a lyrebird, of course, the master impersonator. So I'll do my best impression. So you write in Chapter 7. The Bunjalung Aboriginal people of Australia's central eastern coast and hinterlands have a story about the lyrebird. In the everywhen of the dreaming, the lyrebird was the first bird. When the other birds appeared, they didn't have any songs of their own. It was the lyrebird alone who sang. When the lyrebird realised that all the other birds were songless, it gave each of them a song from its own extensive repertoire. When I first heard this story, I found it a delightful inversion of our understanding that the lyrebird appropriates the songs of other species to augment its own. 
And there are so many passages that follow that one in this chapter about the lyrebird that are just so fascinating and incredible. And I think it's 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 really lovely to read something that has depth of understanding of the possibilities of this animal, which is so defined by its its song or you know deemed to be important because of its impersonation of other birds. But also there's this incredible clip online from a David Attenborough documentary where he's tracking a lyrebird for a forest in Australia. And um, the bird is doing all manner of impersonations of other birds. And then it goes into this other routine that is both ex like extraordinary and like compelling, but also distressing on a level where this creature, you know, small, humble little creature with this amazing ability impersonates the the shutter of a camera going off and then a car alarm and then a chainsaw yep and it's there's there's an interesting story to that clip yes there is <laughs> and it kind of undermines what attenborough was hoping to achieve because that bird was filmed in healesville sanctuary mm. and it was constantly exposed to human noises all its life and probably its its parent was too, so it's kind of acquired that repertoire. The man who made that clip, uh, who was working with the BBC at the time, said he was so kind of concerned that they'd kind of misrepresented what wild birds, what the wild lyrebird does, that he spent a decade trying to find other examples of lyrebirds mimicking human sounds in that way. And he went down rabbit hole after rabbit hole of people saying, oh, yeah, I've got one that mimics our, our water pump or, you know, our car alarm or whatever. And he never found anything. Um, they obviously do, but it's not something they do in the wild. It takes quite a, an impetus to, for them to do it. It's almost as if they're disinterested in our sounds and they're much more intrigued by the, those of their, their I compatriots. I think it represents a really fascinating aspect of our behaviour. Why do we get interested in nature when we think nature is doing something in response to us, mimicking us or, or something? We'll get far more interested in that than nature actually doing what nature does. So I remember when the, the fires were happening a couple of years ago and there was a, a, a social media post of a magpie sitting on a fence imitating the sound of, of um, the fire alarm from the fire truck. And it really is haunting. And particularly at that time with the whole of the East Coast going up in flames, it was just heartbreaking. But it's, it's something that we, you know, we're, we're sort of, we're seeing ourselves reflected in nature as though nature's a mirror of us rather than actually engaging with nature on its own terms. And I think the lyrebird is an example of, of that. Just picking up on what you were saying earlier about the lyrebird, and, and you read this in the book, but I'll try and praise it very, very simply. The lyrebird is one of the oldest lineages of that group of birds called the songbirds. And what's characteristic about the songbirds is that they have to learn their songs. Non-songbirds, water birds, birds of prey, seabirds, most other bird groups don't learn their songs. So the songbirds have created or, or they've evolved this, this method of, of, uh, of singing 
you know, it's a cognitive change, but it creates the possibility of being able to transmit culture, essentially, between one generation and the next. And you hear that in, in lyrebirds. But what fascinated me about the Bunjalung story, of course, was that the lyrebird is kind of the first songbird. And that capacity for song learning, for mimicking and passing the song on to, to other generations, they are doing pretty much what Aboriginal people said that they were doing. Mm. And maybe to jump off on that point as well, and I believe I am correctly referring to a passage in the book, and I hope I'm not referring to fake news that I read somewhere else, like the Attenborough story, but am I right in thinking that lyrebirds in teaching song through generation have the ability to teach their offspring songs of other species that are no longer here and they keep the song going? Yeah, there's a really good example of this in Tasmania. I can't remember when it was. It was sort of around the middle of the 20th century and there was a lot of concern that lyrebirds were going to die out on the mainland, so a population of them were taken to Tasmania. And on the mainland, they were imitating whipbirds. There are no whipbirds in Tasmania, but they still imitate them to this day. But it's interesting that as they do, they gradually drift away from the original whipbird sounds like Chinese whispers. They, they mm -hmm. gradually become a little bit less accurate in doing it. But you can hear that they're learning from their parents, not necessarily from the environment around them. Do they improvise that you know of? That's a really good question. It's a really good question, and it's one that's applied to so many different um, songbirds. Do they create, spontaneously create songs? And no one really knows the answer to that. There are some, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, where, where songbirds can do the most extraordinary things and have really extensive repertoires, sometimes thousands and thousands of different phrases in their repertoire. And are they memorising every single phrase? Or are they just spontaneously improvising? Maybe they're combining elements of, of different phrases together. But it's really difficult to put your finger on exactly what they're doing, except to say some, in many cases it's really extraordinary. I guess for many of us, we're not lucky enough to live in places where we are exposed to nature in the way that we perhaps would like to most appreciate that kind of thing. But for those of us who aren't able to enjoy you know, pristine nature regularly, do you have thoughts or ideas for how we can more readily engage with what's around us and be perceptive to the importance of natural sound where it can be found even in our, our urban modernity? And what can we learn from that? You've got to go out into a wild place. And the reason is that whilst there is nature around us, nice parks, we've got birds that live there and so on, one of the things that you start being perceptive of the more you listen is that as a habitat is modified the first thing that changes is not so much the presence or absence of sound but the nuances of the conversation so for me when i listen to urban magpies they're really screechy and squawky whereas the birds that we have in in the bushland where I come from in central Victoria, you can't get within 50 metres of them. They're so shy and their songs are much softer and, and they're given in a way where the whole community of birds across the landscape will respond to each other. 
So there is, there's nuances of the sound and the way that sound works as a communicative pattern in the landscape which have been disrupted in urban spaces. So nature's there, but it may not be doing the kind of subtlety of, of things that you'll hear in a wild place. So I guess my answer to that would be to certainly enjoy what you have around you and nurture it, but also to spend time in really wild places and to immerse yourself in those places and bring it back with you. Because what you'll be hearing and being surrounded by is something timeless and it's taken so long to evolve the, the subtlety and complexity of interactions that you'll hear there. From that we can learn what a healthy habitat actually sounds like and that's what we need to bring back and, and nurture in our urban spaces is how to create that kind of nuance of interaction between species. And a lot of it's balance of species. So for instance, in the suburbs, you get a lot of birds which are good, um, they're, they're adaptable. They're a little bit, they're strident. You know, they've got bold personalities. And whether it's rainbow lorikeets, currawongs, magpies, ravens, these are all big birds. The ones that'll be missing are things like fairy wrens and thornbills, um, smaller birds, robins, that they've got a kind of a more delicate temperament and you can hear it in their voices. So to bring those kind of birds back into our urban spaces, you know, probably from the peri-urban fringe where they still hang on, but to bring them back into our urban spaces. Once again, sound... I think of sound as it's so important because sound tells you what's going on. It gives you a measure of, of the health of the environment. And so when you get the sound right, everything else starts falling into place. It gives you a really good um, thing to work with. Where's your favourite place to go to experience that? Outback Australia. Outback Australia is probably... It's got some of the most extraordinary birdsong in the world for, for me. The prologue to the book tells about the very first time I went sound recording and uh, at Matawinji in Outback New South Wales and hearing some of the birds there and it was like, it was a realisation of what nature sounded like and just how fascinating and beautiful it was and it probably took a year or so before it kind of gelled as a decision to actually continue and, and publish recordings in the way that we have done but it was, it was that experience and Look, I have found the recordings that I can play now, so nice I, I might finish off by letting nature have the last word. This is one of the very first recordings I ever made, and it was made pre-dawn on a, a dry, rocky ridge top with a couple of acacia bushes. I had no idea of what I was going to hear. I just turned the microphones on. You can hear the animation in their voices and the character in their voices. Mm. This is one of the things about listening to nature is that you can actually hear into the mind of another creature. It takes a little bit of, of sensitivity and empathy to do it, but when it kind of 
dawns on you, it's like, ah. There's so many wonderful lessons and observations in this book. It's a special book. There's, you know, obviously it's about, you know, birds and nature, but it's also about society and about us in a way that's not too inward facing, but it's just receptive. And so I want to say congratulations on the release and thank you. And I'd like to ask all of you to show your appreciation for our wonderful guests with a round of applause. Deep Listening to Nature is available via all reading stores and via our website, where you can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast and also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.